Well, as we continue our series in Godfidence, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about over the last few weeks about this series is um, in the past few weeks, I've had some people that are mentors of mine, people that have, I've been close to, but then even mentors of mine from a distance and uh, that have passed away. And as I've been just looking at their life and thinking about their life and this passage in particular is what does it look like to have a life well lived? That whenever we are gone, there's this dash in life and that there's a birth and there's a death and in between there's a dash and there's so much that happens and can happen and should happen in that dash. And so this morning, that's what Paul is thinking about in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through and following to 30, is he's asking that question and he's telling us, what does it look like to have a life worth living? Now, as Paul's writing in Philippians, one of the things that we know is this is a prison epistle. So he's writing from prison. And at this moment, his life is literally in the balance. And he doesn't know that tomorrow may be his last day. And so as he's thinking back on his life, as he's thinking back on his dash, he's asking the question is, what is my legacy? What is the wake that I have left behind? That the wake of my life, is it one that has influenced in a positive way? And, and, and if so, how come that has been so? And so in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20 and following, Paul is going to dig into that with us a little bit this morning. And we're going to dig in with Paul and ask that question. What does it look like for us to live a life worth living? That there are all kinds of paths that we can go and all kinds of things that we can do, careers we can take and all of those things. But in the midst of all of that, as followers of Jesus, what does it look like to have a life worth living that our legacy, our wake, the dash of our life is one that is worth living? So that when we are at our final moment, we can understand and know that we have a legacy and what that legacy is. And hopefully for us as followers of Jesus, that legacy is one beyond anything of us but about him and him alone. That our legacy is is that we have made an impact for Christ and about Christ in that little dash. It's amazing how quickly life goes by and in those moments of dash. And so here Paul is in that moment thinking about that, life and death, and he's answering that question, what is life worth? He gives us three things to think about. A life worth living is a focused life, a focused life upon Christ. It's a traveling servant's life, and it's also a life of a responsible citizen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 20 and begin asking that question. What is a life worth living? Verse 20 says this, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. Now, again, here Paul is. He's in prison. He's, he's got the scales of life, and he's looking at the dash, and he's thinking about it. And this is the thing that he writes. And that word expect is an interesting word. Expect and hope kind of go together. But this word expect that Paul uses is one that's an interesting meaning. It's this idea that whenever something comes before us, that there's something so attractive to us, our eyes, our hearts, our minds, and our souls, and our appetites, that we turn our attention to it. And so here Paul says that Christ is so appealing, so sufficient, so everything, so sustaining, that he has gained my attention. And so I expectantly look at him and place my hope in him. It's an eager, intense look that turns my eyes' affection, my heart's appetite, everything toward that one thing. And Paul is saying that I live my life 
with eager, intense look upon the one thing that sustains me and brings life to me and fulfills me in that dash of life, and that is Jesus and Jesus alone. That in that moment, whenever he had that encounter on the Damascus Road of one that had been um, condemning Christ and condemning Christians, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, he has this dramatic encounter with Jesus, and his life from that moment forward becomes all about Jesus. And so here Paul begins and he says, a life worth living. When I'm here in the balances of life and death, I can know with assurance, with an expectant hope that my eyes and my hearts and my affections have been turned to Christ. And because I've been living under that eager expectation of that, I know that I will not be ashamed because I'm pursuing him and him alone. Now, this is our journey as Christians, is developing the trust that the one that we've turned our eyes toward actually is worthy of it. That there's, as we're going along in life, that there are moments where our eyes are on Jesus, but something becomes appealing to us. That we see it in the peripheral vision of our heart and our soul, and something kind of like, mm, you know what, I'll try this. And so we venture off for a moment and take a bite of that apple and realize immediately it doesn't bring joy It doesn't sustain us. It doesn't bring what we think it does. Actually, it brings hurt, pain, shame, and regret. And so in that moment, what do we do? The Scripture says, as a follower of Jesus, in that moment when we sense that we've strayed, we immediately repent and get back on course, which means that our eyes and our heart's affections have to go back to the cross so we can get to where we need to be to be in alignment. And so Paul tells us that when we say yes to Jesus, from that moment forward, we are consistently in pursuit of him alone. And that in our journey, there will be things and there will be moments and even seasons maybe where we think something else will bring us purpose and meaning and value. But immediately when we go get it, we realize it's just a cheap cheap trinket. It's something of not of worth and value. And immediately... Because we've experienced Christ, because we have a little bit of knowledge of him, we run back to that thing that fulfills us and sustains us like nothing else. And so that as we're in our journey as Christians, we develop this trust that if I just keep my eyes on what it's supposed to be on, these other things, yes, at moments they may may be appealing to me, but if I just keep my eyes here, I will get past this. I will be sustained in this, and I can get past it, and it will no longer even appeal to me because it's in my backward vision. It's not even in my peripheral vision. It's not even in front of me. I am moving forward, and that's how we find, as Christians, we find victory and freedom in life is because the things that once used to be attractive to us are no longer attractive, or they no longer have the appeal to us because we've moved past them, and we've experienced a deeper walk with Jesus. We now begin to know him on a deeper level because our eyes are on him. And the longer our eyes are on something, the more intimate our knowledge becomes. So if you've ever gone to an art studio, Becky and I have had the privilege of going to the Louvre and being able to do that. And so one of my favorite artists, I know this is a, um, this would not shock you, but one of my favorite artists is Rembrandt, okay? And you're like, what in the world? Why are we talking about this? One of my favorite paintings from art class was this picture of Rembrandt. And I was sitting in the Louvre and looking at it, and I'm there, and there's... If you've ever been, there are lots of pictures to look at, okay? But there was this one. I drew it, I don't know how many times in junior high and high school to try to capture this thing. And so I was just in love. And so I'm there, and I'm studying this Rembrandt, and I'm looking at it, and I'm seeing all these different things. And there are parts of it that I'd never seen before. And I'm thinking about this is what it's like 
to spend time focused on Jesus. That as we begin to look at and walk and deeply, intensely, eagerly look at him, we begin to see things about him we never saw before. The light in this way and a different thing. And so you begin to experience a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And the longer that we keep that look and the longer that we keep moving toward it and that you can move further back and get closer in different angles, you see things from a different perspective. And here that's what Paul is saying to us, is that in our journey, a life worth living is one that has an eager, intense look and gaze at Jesus and continually is looking at him. And yes, there may be different angles, but we're always in pursuit of him. And in that moment of saying yes to him, that is where then, as, as the scriptures tell us throughout John and some other places, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. We begin to experience the qualities and characteristics of who Jesus is, and we see even more of what the picture of Jesus is. And so Jesus says, Paul tells us, keep your eyes focused on Jesus and the cheap trinkets of the world that used to seemingly bring you worth and value will no longer even be attractive to you. And that what Paul tells us is that at some point, we're going to experience everything that God the Father has for us, and he will open up the treasure troves of his treasure for his children. So the first thing for us is a life worth living, is a life that's fully focused on Jesus and upon the cross. The next verse, in verse 21, he shows us that we're to be a traveling salesperson, so to speak. For, it says this, and for to me... Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Now, again, here Paul is. He's in prison, so he's kind of got the scales going. And as he's thinking about, tomorrow could be my last day. I could be condemned to death today. And so he's thinking about his life, pursuit of Jesus. And he said, yes, my eyes have been focused on Jesus, but as I've experienced this walk with him, this is what it means for Paul. It means living for Jesus is one to know him. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, he kind of expands upon this, this idea of knowing Jesus. And he says this in Philippians chapter 3 um, in relation to that. Can you flip that for me? I want to know Christ. Now, this know is, as we've talked about several different times, isn't just an intellectual knowledge, but it's an experience. That you know him, not just with this, but you have a full experience. And so here Paul kind of describes what that experience should look like for us as Christians. I want to know him intellectually, but also experientially. I want to know the mighty power, and that word power, we get dynamite. So there's this explosive power that we have accessible to us. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So that you have the same power through Christ in you because of the Holy Spirit to overcome the things in your life that produce death. And so here Paul is saying, I want to know Christ, not just intellectually, but I want to experience what it means to have the power of God in me that raised Christ from the dead so that I can have victory in my life. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? That we can have the power of God in us, raise us up and overcome the things in life that we're stuck in. To have the power to say no to the things that were attractive to us before. That now because our eyes' attention and our hearts' attention is upon the cross, we can say no to them. Not in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we, most of the time, we don't even tap into it. We read TNT and we think, man, that's too much or we're afraid of it or whatever. We don't even tap into it. Paul's saying, I want to experience it. Like, I want to see things move because of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we like that. That sounds good to us. Now, here's the second part of what Paul wants to experience. I want to suffer with him. Sign me up for that. How many of you are signing up for that? Like, say, hey, yes, I want to suffer with Jesus. Because if we suffer with Jesus, that means all the way to the cross. That means all the way to the cross and all of his friends and his loved ones that said, hey, I'm with you, dude, are now no longer with him. And so Paul is saying, I want to experience the highs of what it means to have victory in life. But I also want to literally, it's that word koinonia that we talked about a few weeks ago. I want to have koinonia fellowship with him and suffer with him, be side by side with him, so that I will know that even in death, I have confidence not in me, but in him. So that one way or another, in victory or in the suffering, that I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is telling us, keep your eyes upon him, and that for me, living is Jesus. To know him. The second thing that for Paul that living for Jesus is, is not only just knowing him and experiencing all this, is also to imitate him. To literally be a mime of him. To pantomime. Now, again, Becky and I were in Paris a few years ago, and we saw the Louvre, and we also went to this thing called the Eiffel Tower. And if you've ever been to the Eiffel Tower, it's awesome when you're down below, not so cool when you're up, because it moves. And uh, if you're uh, respective of heights like I am, it's, uh, it's not a cool thing, okay? But I did it, because I love my wife, and my life's like, whew, you know what? I want to kiss my husband on the top of the Eiffel Tower, and I'm like, I'm there. I may get sick, but we're going to do it, baby. And it's a Hallmark movie. You can watch it. It comes on Friday at 5. No. And so while we're in line, there's this guy that comes up and begins to break up for me the, the fear that's happening. And it's this guy who's a mime. Now, mimes, you're kind of like, they're kind of weird, right? They're kind of unique people. But here's this guy. He's a mime. And, and he begins walking up. And he's got one of those old World War II like pilot hats and all that stuff. And so he kind of looks goofy anyway. And as people are walking up, he starts mimicking them. And so they're walking, and he's like, you know, doing stuff. You know, I like, you like that, I know. And so they're mimicking, that's, that was my imitation of Josh. And so, as you're mimicking people, people start laughing. Now, as the great theologians once said, walk this way and talk this way, that is what we're to be doing. We're to know Jesus, and then to begin to imitate him, So as we're walking and talking, people see in us Jesus. Here's the thing I think we struggle with, is that when we, most of us, struggle with being able to say, imitate me and how I follow Jesus. Paul says to us, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. And that as Paul, people saw Paul's life and Paul's teaching and his ministry and the way that he did things, they saw in him Jesus. They saw that he sat at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. And that was one of the things that was common in the day, that as rabbis were teaching, others would say, oh, I can tell that you have sat at the feet of Rabbi John or Rabbi Jose. And so they would begin to know that because that student, that disciple had so sat at the feet of that rabbi and studied and mimicked and imitated that rabbi that it was almost inseparable being able to tell who they were from the other person. And so here Paul is telling us that to live for him is to live for Christ. And he wants to know the victory and the suffering. But he also wants to imitate the life of Jesus in such a way that when people imitate him, they're also imitating Jesus. To live for Christ for Paul is to know him and to imitate him. The other piece for knowing 
in, in uh, celebrating Christ for Paul is he wants to be able to share him. He wants to know him and imitate him and to be able to share him. And he tells us that, that it's a privilege and a responsibility that we have. And he says this, So though I am the least serving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me, Paul, the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. And what Paul is telling us is that he had the privilege and responsibility, but it's also the same for us. That whenever Paul in verse 21 says, for me, living is Christ, what he's saying to us is to live for Christ means to know him and to experience the fullness of all that Christ has for us. And to then begin to imitate him as I have studied him and know him and get to the intricacies of the picture of who Jesus is and what he wants from me, I can begin to imitate that so that as people imitate and watch me, they want the Jesus that I'm following. Because they're seeing something transform in me because of my eyes and my heart's attentions upon Jesus. And so people begin to see that. And so then naturally then what happens, the fruit of our life, people say, I want what you've got. And then we have the opportunity and privilege and responsibility to share the Jesus that we've been studying. The Jesus that we've become to know, the Jesus that we're imitating, people want that. Why? Because our neighbors have been settling for and are settling for cheap trinkets and things that don't bring worth and value and purpose. So maybe for a second And then all of a sudden they long for something more, something that will sustain them, something that brings value and worth and meaning to their life. And they're watching your life and they're seeing you move in the same direction. And it's usually against the flow of culture. And you're okay with people mocking you and making fun of you, just like the mimes are made fun of. They're okay because they're bringing joy. You in your walk and pursuit, it begins to that point of people can mock you and make fun of you because your purpose is Jesus and not all this. Your audience is a different audience. And Paul tells us then that a life worth living is a life that's focused on Jesus in such a way that as we get to know him and experience him, begin to imitate him, then naturally the only thing that we would want for other people is to know and experience the Jesus that we have beginning to know and experience as well. And it's a natural outflow of that life. So he tells us that we're traveling salesmen. about you? But, but you remember those days where you had somebody who would come and knock on your door and ring the doorbell? You have to be of a certain age, okay? And um, we have evidence still in my parents' house because we have these things called encyclopedias. Have you all heard of these things? I don't know why we still have them. I go back to my parents' house and I'm like, hey, you all have heard of the Internet, right? And uh, there's more encyclopedias just like right here than all of that. And I guess it's just a good memory of a good deal they had. I don't know. And so, and there used to be vacuum salesmen and stuff. And so you go door to door. And so here Paul is telling us that that is our call and our responsibility, that we have a product that we so believe in, that we're so living, that we're going door to door and people see us and they're like, man, I've got the best thing and nothing will ever overtake it. There's no other product better than Jesus. And that our product is seen in the way that we serve other people. That we're about serving other people. That we're traveling servants wherever we go. That our heart's attention is upon Jesus. And because our heart's attention on him and we're mimicking him, one of the things that Jesus did, he served people in a ways that were unexpected. That he walked up to a leper who hadn't been touched in years, and Jesus put his hands on him and said, be healed. 
Now, they were healed physically, but can you imagine what emotionally and spiritually went on if you hadn't been touched in 20 years and the Messiah, somebody walks up to you, a rabbi who could not be unclean, comes up to you who, when you walk down the street, has to say, I'm a leper, I'm unclean, so no one will come within 10 to 15 feet of you, and that Jesus, the rabbi that everyone else is following, walks up and he touches them. That is a servant's heart that they were challenging. And that's what the world is looking for out of us as followers of Jesus, to mimic and to imitate and to do things outside of the culture that will transform people's hearts. Because people, our audience is not others, but him and him alone. And if our heart's attention and our eyes' attention is upon him, then it changes the way that we see other people and how we interact with those that are the lowliest or others would say are not worth being touched and have time. To live a life worthy of the call of Jesus is one, a focused life. It's also a traveling servant's life. The third part of it is, is that we are a responsible citizen. In verses 27 and following, Paul talks about that he's here and he's balancing out what's happening in his life. And he knows that tomorrow could be his last day. And that he is a Roman citizen. That he, as a Roman citizen, he has rights and privileges. But those rights and privileges in the mark of court mean nothing if they declare him guilty. And here what Paul is telling us, is reminding us, is that we are citizens, yes, of a country, but more importantly, we're citizens of heaven. And that Paul is telling us, my life could be gone tomorrow, even though I have the rights and privileges of all of Roman citizenship, those things can end. They do not care about my citizenship. My friends, I want to remind you of this, is that God is not surprised that who is president or who is not president. And some of you are extremely annoyed. By all of this. You know how I know? I've seen your Facebook. Your Facebook is there. And here's what I want to remind you of. As a follower of Jesus, your citizenship is not here. Does God care about all that? Yes, he does. But more importantly, he cares about where your eyesight is and that you are concerned about your citizenship, not as much here, but there. And that you have an opportunity to share how many people, however people can get to heaven, that that is our responsibility. Do not worry about tomorrow and who's going to do what and what's going to happen. But our citizenship, more importantly, is not here but there. And Paul says to his people in Philippi, listen, you're Roman citizens and that's great and that's awesome. But more importantly, you're citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, the way that you do community, people are looking at you. You should not be a divided group. You should not be a gossiping group. You should not be fighting over carpet or different stuff like that. You should be a group that stands together, fights together for the faith, and have a unified purpose. And that is this, is that we understand that it is hard enough to be a follower of Jesus. It is something you cannot do alone. And that we need each other to have a focused life, to have a life that's moving forward, to be able to intimately know Jesus like we should. We have to do it together and have each other's back. And literally, as Paul says here, stand back to back and say, who's got my back? And that not just one person, but that multiple people say, I got you. I will stand with you and I will fight with you because sometimes life just stinks as a citizen here. But as citizens of heaven, we understand this is just temporary. This is just a dash. And a life worth living is a life that's focused on Jesus. 
and understanding on our journey that we have opportunities to know Jesus intimately. And basically, this is choir practice. This is rehearsal for our preparation for heaven. So if we've got 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, 70 years, 80 years in this little dash, this is our choir practice for heaven. And what we're doing here, how well we know him, creates an even more longing for what it will be like for all of eternity. And that's what Paul is saying. He says this, I'm here at this precipice of life and death. And listen, I love you, Philippians. I love you, the church in Philippi. I love you, Christians. I love you, Lydia, so much. I want to be with you. I literally want to walk with you and to serve you whenever you need it. That's his call. However, I have so enjoyed getting to know Jesus. I have so worked hard at keeping my eyes on the cross and experiencing the dynamite power of the resurrection, the suffering of the saints. I understand it. I've been there. I've been beaten for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I so know that that I long to know that there's going to be a fullness in that moment when Jesus ushers me in. But I know that my time is not yet. He literally says in this passage in verse 27 and following that he's um, and torn between one and the other. And it's literally this idea that as he's walking on the road, that there's this path, probably a better word is caught, that he's caught so that the road actually narrows to such a point that he's at this place where he cannot, he can only do two things. He can either go forward or he can walk backward. He cannot even do a U-turn. It's that tight. And Paul says that I'm so caught, I'm so stuck in this situation, I've got two options. But for you, because I love you so much and I know what God's called me to do, the only way that I can go is to go through the narrow way and to go keep moving forward. I cannot turn around and leave you. He even talks about the other idea that he talks about that he longs to depart, that he longs for his tent stakes to be lifted up and the, the camp to be put away, for the, the moorings of a, his ropes tied to the moorings to be released so that he can be set to sail, that he has these two options, but he knows that God confidence that God is going to release him from prison because his job is not done yet. A life worth living. That dash, it happens so quick. Paul says a life worth living where you have a legacy and you have a wake behind you is this. It's a focused life. A life that says yes to Jesus and continually strives to know him and to know that the things of life are going to come and that our heart's affection is for him. And that as we travel along life's ways, that we, we know him more intimately, we begin to imitate him and begin to share because of the fruits of the transformation that's happening. The, the power of the Spirit is beginning to transform us. And that we, because we have a, a eyesight, not just on the cross, but we have citizenship, um, our understanding of our citizenship is in heaven. And that we can have joy in this life because the things of this life will come and go. Presidents and leaders and money and houses and cars. All those things that seemingly give us purpose and meaning for a short time, they all come and go. But our citizenship in heaven is forever. And that we can have joy in that. That we know that he's given us that. And it's secured. He will not take it away. That is the biggest and main treasure that God has for his children. For his name's sake. Let's pray together. Father, we confess. We are quick to pursue trinkets. 
we are quick to pursue other things. So, Father, we just pray that you would just renew in us, refresh in us, remind us, and maybe this morning that you would just take our faces and put blinders over our eyes and move us and our eyesight and our heart's affections back to the cross, back to you. Father, as we do life, as we journey together, that more and more each day we would not long for the things that we see in our periphery, but that we'd be so in tune with you and so in pursuit of you that those things go by in a flash. Father, for our desire is to know you, to imitate you, and to share you. It's in your son's name that we pray.